Amen. We are really thankful that Doug is back visiting us. Can we give him a round of applause? That was beautiful, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome. If you are new here, if it's your first time, you've got brought by a friend, welcome. We're so glad that you are here at the Grove. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And you caught us in the middle of our Lenten sermon series. We are reading through the Gospel of Luke. We have a tradition here during Lent that we read through one of the Gospels, and this year was Luke. If you didn't grab a scripture journal, there's still some in the back. It will be really helpful as you're reading through and taking notes if you haven't gotten one yet. But we are in the middle of Luke reading through this gospel. But I have to admit, we haven't gotten very far yet. We're only in chapter 5. And I keep telling Stephen, we got to pick up the pace, man. We're going to make it to Easter and get through all 24 chapters. So you have not missed much, is what I'm saying, if you're jumping in. Let me give you a quick recap to where we have been, and then we'll talk about where we're going today. So, of course, at the very beginning, we have the Christmas story. We kind of skipped over that for Lent since we are refreshed from December and have just heard that story. And then we moved into Jesus being baptized. And then last week, we talked about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And today, we are going to be in chapter 5. But before we start that chapter, I want to do a quick note, a quick refresher on the genre of the Gospels and what that means. You see, when we're talking about the Bible, we do talk a lot about genres, or we should, because the Bible is a collection of different types of books, different genres. And depending on which genre you're reading, it determines how you read it and what questions you ask of it, right? And so Gospel often gets translated as something along the lines of, These are the biographies of Jesus. And that's true. These four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they do talk about the events of Jesus' life. And most of them are chronological and move in a certain direction. But that's not the full picture of what the gospel is trying to do. You see, the gospels were written not just as a biography or retelling of Jesus' life. They were written for a purpose. And all four were written in slightly different contexts, but generally speaking, they were written so that other people could hear the good news of Jesus' life and come in to the following that would become the church. They're written and shaped by their authors in a certain way to get a certain point of cross. And in terms of scripture and why we're thinking about it and what questions we should be asked, almost all biblical authors are talking about two things. They're answering two questions. And so when we come to scripture, there's pretty much two questions that you should always be asking when we're reading the Bible. The first one is, what does this tell us about God? What does what I'm reading tell us about God? Every biblical author is trying to teach us or reveal something about God. And the second one is, what does this tell us about us, about humanity, about people? And I put in parentheses, if anything, because let me be clear, not all Bible stories are about you. Yes? I'd say this at the beginning of every Bible study I ever teach. The book of the the Bible is a book about who? God. It is a book about who? God. And sometimes, sometimes it's very nice and it gives us some advice about us as well. But most of the time, it is trying to teach us about who God is. We're lucky in that this story today does, in fact, talk about us as well, and that's helpful. And so we'll get into that a little bit. But you see, Luke was concerned with these questions as well. He wanted to teach us something about God. And for the first four chapters 
of his gospel, he's trying to tell us very, something very specific about God. You see, in his context, we assume Luke was Gentile, not Jewish, and that he was writing to an audience that was probably mixed, Gentile, and Jew. And he wanted to tell them something very specific about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Namely, he wanted to tell them that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was God. That he was the son of God. That is a very tricky thing to try to tell someone. But Luke does it well. He tells us all these stories. All these stories about how Jesus interacts with the world around him. Trying to prove the point that he does have the authority, the healing powers, the miracles in him to be God. That he is in fact God. And that's why, for the first four chapters, you'll notice there's a lot of miracles, a lot of healings. When he gets baptized, the son of God, that voice comes over calling him his son. You also notice that right before this, right where we're reading today, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth and reads a scroll from Isaiah, declaring that he is the one to fulfill the story that has been told about the Messiah. Luke has done his service and will continue through his gospel to answer that question of who is God. And his answer is very clear that it is Jesus, and he's going to spend his time talking about that. But when we get to chapter 5, that's when we start to wonder a little bit. Okay, if Jesus of Nazareth is God, well, then what does that mean about all the people who are starting to follow him? What does that mean about the Gentiles? What does that mean about the Jews? What is that? Are we supposed to just go back to the old way of doing things? Do we just make everyone Jewish, and that's how it's going to work, and we're going to follow the law? And obviously, Luke's answer is a little tricky, but he starts to answer this question in chapter 5. So that's where we're going to pick up today. You can open your scripture journal. It's on page 38. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 straight through the first time. Hear the word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When you're trying to ask the question of what does this say about us in scripture, you always need to find who are the humans in the story. In the Bible, if you're a human in the Bible, 
You're either a perfect example of how we need to act, or you're the opposite of how we need to act. In this case, I think we get a, Simon catches a break, and he's the exact model disciple of who we are supposed to be. So we know that Simon is who we are supposed to look at, because go look through who is mentioned in this passage. When people are named in the Bible, it means you're supposed to pay attention. And Simon is named not once, not twice, but five times in this passage. You can go back and circle them. Five times. He is the main character. He is who we are supposed to pay attention to. He is trying to answer this question of what is this passage supposed to be telling us about us? And Luke even throws in a little cue there because his name is Simon, right? We know eventually this guy becomes Peter, founder of the church as we know it. And so he calls him Simon Peter in this passage, probably not because he was called Simon Peter at the time, but to give us a little bit of a breadcrumb to help us understand that when I refer to Peter later, this, this is the guy I'm talking about. So we need to look at Simon if we're going to answer the question of what does this tell us? So let's do it. Let's look through the interactions that Jesus has with Simon. The first time that we see Simon interact with Jesus is right at the very top. And so we're going to look at verse 3, and we're going to reread that. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people of their boat. But when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When I first read this, I was so interested in the response because you would think that if we're trying to get a model disciple, if we're trying to like mimic our lives after this guy, then really the response from Jesus' question should have just been, yes. It should have just been, I obey you, done. But that's actually not at all what it says. I think that's so interesting that Simon mentions his circumstances, that he goes back and says, look, we tried. We've tried that method. We've done that. He is not afraid to name the disappointing circumstances that he is in. The times that he has tried again and again, he's not scared to mention that to Jesus. But Simon becomes the model disciple when he throws in that little three-letter word and when he says, but. Look, I know there's disappointing circumstances and I'm not going to be beholden to them. Because in you, Jesus, I see something. Something that commands my obedience. Something that demands authority. It's clear that Simon doesn't quite get it yet. He's still calling him master, which is what you would call a teacher or like someone normal, not God, right? He's still calling him master. So we know that he doesn't fully get it, but he recognizes it enough to move from a place of reality, of complaining, of the disappointing circumstances, moving again and again to a place of, but, but I will obey the first thing that Simon does is he starts to pay attention and recognize who this Jesus guy might be. Maybe he doesn't fully get it, but he starts to understand there's something special here. Then the second thing 
that he says or he does is in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He gets it. He gets it because he called him Lord. Something has changed. He saw, well, what has changed? He saw all those fish and we're like, dang, that must be God, right? That must be something important and I'm going to pay attention to it. But his response, honestly, reading it in modern language is odd. It's an odd response. It's an odd thing to have something so glorious happen. And instead of gratitude, you go immediately to like, get away from me. I am sinful. But what's important to note is that there is precedent for this in the Bible. This is kind of how we know that this is the same God that's been working through the Israelites for thousands of years because this same thing, God does an amazing thing, abundant thing. And the prophet responds by saying, oh, that, I can't be around that. You're holier than thou, than me. It happens with Moses. It happens with Isaiah. It happens again with Jeremiah. It happens with all of the prophets. This idea that God is so other than us, that God is so holy, so beyond what we understand, that is an idea that is inherent in the Bible. And Simon is just following into those footsteps. He's recognizing this being, this person here on earth as God. And in doing so, he's recognizing something about himself too. He recognizes that when he's looking at something so holy, so perfect, so abundant, that, that that is not true about himself. It's like when you're looking or comparing something that is perfectly clean versus something that you thought was clean, but it's totally not. I, I never wipe my glasses. I never, ever wipe my glasses. And so I go around my life very much with like spots on my glasses. It drives my husband crazy. And this last couple days, my husband has said, you have to start doing like the spray and the wipe thing. And I started to do it and I thought, oh my God, I can see so much better than I could before. And I didn't even know how much I couldn't see before. It's a silly analogy, but man, is it kind of the same thing. Like you thought you were good. You thought you were fine. Simon thought, I mean, I'm just a fisherman. I'm a Jewish guy probably fishing. I'm doing great, doing fine. And then you see something that is so beyond good. And you start to realize like, man, I'm nowhere near that. His confession is not a sad, deprecating thing. His confession is the beginning of something really good in his life. You cannot begin the change that Jesus wants in your life until you have had that moment of recognizing your need for something greater, something better, something like Jesus. Simon responds in the way that all the prophets had before him. And then he ends with this kind of final interaction at the very end of the passage. And Jesus, so after this has all happened, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. 
And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Left everything and followed him. For Simon, this was a big sacrifice. Fishermen in that day and age were kind of the merchant class. It wasn't like they were peasants and poor and had nothing to leave behind. It actually was an industry, right? And he left not only the financial security, but presumably left family as well. We can't quite know. And he left for something that was completely unknown, something that didn't have any boundaries or set parameters around it. Something about him understood that whatever commitments he had, those were nothing compared to what was promised to him in this new life with Jesus. He left everything and followed him. Those were the three movements of Simon. He recognized who Jesus was. He recognized his own need for Jesus. And then he left everything and followed him. The funny part about the Bible is that often what it teaches, and if you dig deep enough into the stories, you can get to that final question of what does this mean for me? And that's true for this story too. Because those responses of Simon is the threefold path of discipleship. It is how we are supposed to be. So in our terms, when we think about it, we think about how to be a disciple. I think there's three things that you need to do to be a disciple. Modeled after Simon. And we made them really catchy so you can remember them. Yeah? The first one, like Simon, you have to lean in to the story that has been given you. You have to recognize God is in front of you and in your life. And you have to name it as such. I think that's where we mess up. We kind of know God's here. We kind of know that Jesus is at work. But we don't name it like that. Not to ourselves, not to other people. We call it coincidences or intuition. When good things happen, we thank like the technical parts that made that happen. Some part of us has been lost over the centuries where we're scared to name who God is and how God is working. But to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, it is paramount that you understand who God is and who Jesus is as the Son of God, that you recognize that fact. You have to lean in to those little feelings, that intuition, whatever you call it, the Holy Spirit working in you to recognize that God is at work in the world. The second thing you need to do is you have to look within. This is actually like perfect for Lent because this is what we've been talking a lot about. It's that second movement assignment when he says, don't come near me for I am sinful. We can't be in the presence of God without recognizing our own need for God. In Lent, we call this repentance, and we really focus on that tradition. The idea of turning away from the patterns of sin in our life by inviting the Holy Spirit to help us change. Repentance is part of being a disciple. It is the beginning of the change that you are going to invite the Holy Spirit into your life to make you more like Jesus. You have to lean in, you have to look within, and then the last thing is that you have to jump in. And for Simon, this means physically leaving. Very, very rarely in our life does it actually mean physically leaving. It does for a few people. But for most of us, it's 
depends on your life. It can be a habit that you need to leave behind, a vision of your family that you had, a definition of success. Maybe it is a physical place or a job. Being a disciple always requires sacrifice of some sort. It requires leaving behind because you can't have a life full of things and have space for Jesus. You have to leave some of that behind. And often it is the case that God asks us to leave those things behind before he starts to plant new things in our life. In a lot of ways, that is what Lent is about. Clearing space, pulling weeds so that you can have fertile soil in order to grow. Being a disciple means that we lean in, we look within, and we jump in. But here's the kicker. I actually think there's a fourth one. And it's kind of alluded to in here, but it's not really finished in this story. And it, and it keeps going and keeps alluding to it, Luke does, through Luke and then again through Acts, which he also wrote. There's a fourth one. And that fourth one is in that verse that I just read, and I'm going to read it one more time, that Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Luke's not as poetic as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He does not say, you will be fishers of men. He goes straight to the point, you will catch men. And it's an interesting turn of phrase and it's also, like, really problematic. In a lot of ways, like many things in the Bible, sadly, this phrase has been used to justify so much from discomfort to violence. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to this phrase. Because I think Jesus is actually saying, there's actually a fourth step, Simon. A fourth thing that you need to pay attention to. You won't quite get it yet, but maybe by the time I resurrect and go into heaven, maybe, maybe you will understand it then. You need to be catchers of men. You need to catch people. It's obvious that Jesus is trying to bring an analogy here, right? He's trying to compare the fish that he has just multiplied and he's trying to draw the disciples' attention to those fish. But what's also interesting about this story is Jesus very well could have multiplied those fish, said, hey, know that I'm God, and walked away. Actually, he does do that in a few other stories. He performs a miracle, asks nothing of the people, and walks away just to show that he is God. But that's not what happens here. He could have said, look, Here's these fish. Take them. It will fill your family and your village for maybe the next few months. Go ahead and kill them and sell them, and we're going to do this all again later. He could have said that that cycle is okay, but he doesn't because he's trying to do something new and something different in their lives. He's telling them that that cycle that they've been in, that cycle is not actually where the abundance is. You look at that pile of fish, and I know it seems like abundance, but I actually have something better for you, something that redefines what abundant life is for you. And it's not in those fish. If you want the secret to actual abundance, if you want to know what I came for, then it's not in what you can see. It is in the invitation that I'm inviting you into the work that I'm doing. And I'm using you 
because I believe in the power of spirit to be in you and work through you. You will catch men because you will pull them into this story that will give them life instead of death. That is the cycle that I want you to believe in. That is the cycle that I'm here to promote. We don't like to talk about evangelism. Not around here, not while I was growing up, not at all. We're good mainline people, we don't do that. And we think about it, we think about people on street corners or the Latter-day Saints people who come to our doors or the Uber driver who asks us if we know Jesus. That's what we think of when we think about evangelism. And most of the time, those things don't work, you shouldn't do them, with exception, yeah? But evangelism is how it is meant to be lived out, is absolutely required if you are a disciple of God. If you follow Jesus, it is the fourth step to discipleship. And I think Jesus gives us some clues here of how we're supposed to live that out. And it's actually this tiny, tiny phrase. It's in verse 4. He said, he's talking to Simon to put out his nets for the first time. And he says, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Too often when we talk or think about evangelism, we think about it in really shallow waters. We think about a passing phrase or a written note or something that just feels superficial. But true evangelism, true pulling people into God's story happens in deep relational waters. It happens over years, decades. It happens slowly, and often it happens one at a time. It is something that requires patience and fortitude. It is something that is done by modeling your life instead of talking about it so much. And it is something that is available to all of us. I have seen you guys evangelize, whether you call it that or not. I have seen you invite people to church. I've seen you invite people to small groups. I've seen you offer to pray for people and actually mean it. I've seen you start to normalize Christianity as a thing that's important to you in the wider world. All those things are things that we are called to do. Things that we are meant to do as we pull people into this story. This week, this Lent, I hope that you think of one or two people in your life and they are already there. Cast your nets where they already are. Think of one or two people that you know that God is telling you to move, to pull them into this story somehow. That could be an invitation to Easter. It could be an invitation to church. It could be smaller. It could be offering to pray for them. So instead of saying, thinking of you when you're texting them, actually being bold enough to say, We're, I'm praying for you, and naming what's important in your life and what you're doing in your relationship with Jesus. One to two people over the course of Lent. Who is God asking you to pull into this story? What is required of you during this season? And I'm gonna end with this because here's why I like so deeply believe that this is part of our call as disciples. The reason that we pull people in is because someone pulled you in.
to. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was a college, like, youth group leader. Maybe it was a high school camp. Someone pulled you into this story. Someone told you to come. Someone knew it was important enough to tell you that this is what actually matters. Someone prayed for you. Someone pulled you into the story that makes sense in your life. And you keep coming back because it does make sense. When everything else falls apart, when you have disappointing circumstances, when you're like Simon saying, I've done this a million times, you know that there's a but waiting because someone else has told you that this story promises you more abundant life than you could ever imagine. That is who we are as Christians. We are storytellers. And we are people who keep participating and forming that story for generations to come. Whoever it is, whoever is on your heart, do not ignore it. Do not turn away. Listen and lean in to the call that God is giving you. Let us pray. Jesus, sometimes it can feel so intimidating to be part of the story and given the responsibility to tell it to others, whether that be our kids or friends or coworkers, our parents even. Sometimes we absolutely do not have the words to say and it feels scary to say them. God, we just ask that we know how to respond to the call, that you give us the fortitude and the foresight and the availability to be able to pull more people into this story. Continue your faithfulness and we will continue ours. It is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.